Good afternoon. Please turn your Bible, James, chapter 4, verse 1 through 10. Chapter 4, verse 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive. Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This is the word of God. Hi, New Hope. Thanks for reading God's word to us, Paul. Great to see you all. I want to invite you to pray with me. Our Father, we stand in awe of your goodness. We stand in awe of your grace, and mercy towards us. And so we come to you to worship, not on our own merit, but we come looking to the cross, looking to the one who died in our place. Come in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we come in the power of your Holy Spirit asking that you would fill us all the more with your Spirit. And we ask that you would give us the grace we need to receive with meekness your Word, which is able to save our souls. We ask all of us in the name of our Lord. Amen. Cravings underlie conflict. Those are the words of late author David Pallison, and they, they served as the, the, the central theme of last week's message. Cravings underlie conflict. The first three verses of James chapter 4 taught us last week the simple, vital truth that our fights so often happen because our desires are not met. We fight because we don't get what we want. And our desires are so powerful at times, so out of control, they're at war within us. So James says, you will go to war to get what you want. And that th those desires in us, they, they may be legitimate desires. Maybe you want to be respected, you want to be heard, you want to be recognized, you want to be loved. Not bad desires at all. But what happens is they become demands, don't they? Demands that you must have fulfilled, that others in your life 
need to fulfill or else you go to war. And so James says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. So James ends that little section by telling us, you're, you're not going to get what you want, not really, no matter how hard you fight. You're not going to get what you want, no matter how willing you are and skilled you are in engaging in conflict. It tells us you're not going to get what you want for two reasons. One, either it's because you're looking for good things in the wrong place, that is, you're demanding from people what ultimately only God can satisfy you with. Whether it's approval, or it's comfort, or it's love, or it's recognition, you'll never be satisfied by enough of it from anyone else. Only God himself can fulfill that deep desire. Here's the other reason we won't get what we want, no matter how hard we fight. Because our desires are selfish and out of line with God's will. So either you're, you're looking for good things from the wrong source, from people instead of God, or your desires are selfish and they're out of line with God's will. In other, ways, in other words, your, your motives for what you want are, are self-serving. So either way, James says, you, you won't finally get what you're after, no matter how much you yell, nag, or insult, or belittle, or hurt one another. you didn't listen to last week's message, um, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. Just go back to, to that. Especially if, you're, if you happen to be married, you happen to be in a, in a relationship, an intimate relationship like marriage. Maybe you're soon to be married. Or dealing with conflicts with your children, maybe, or you're dealing with conflicts with your parents. You go back and listen. I think what you'll hear there informs some of what we're talking about today and vice versa. Today we're unpacking verses 4 through 10 of James chapter 4, where James gets even more direct, as if he hasn't already made us uncomfortable enough. In verse 4 he says, you adulterous people. How's, how's that for warmth? Why, what, what kind of intro is that? All through the letter, James has been using words like this. He's been calling us, his, his readers, my brothers, my beloved brothers and sisters. But now, all of a sudden, it's adulterous people. Here's what we're going to see. This seven-verse section is vitally connected to what we saw last week. He's still talking to people who fight and quarrel. But more than that, what he's talking about here is linked to everything that we've seen in James so far. It really, what, what's here in these seven verses is at the heart of James's letter. And, and as harsh as it may sound... There's so much goodness for us here. There is love from God in these words. There's hope from God in these words. So to understand what James is saying in this section, we're simply going to follow the structure of the passage itself. We're just going to go right down through it. And the way it breaks up, breaks down like this. First James gives us a warning, and he gives us a promise, and he gives us a directive very clear directive. So there's a warning, a promise, and then the directive. So first, it's the warning. Look at verse 4. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world 
makes himself an enemy of God. Again, that's a startling intro. And, and you know what, what, what it says there, you adulterous people? That isn't even a great translation. What he's saying is, is even more startling than that. And lots of English translations seem to shy away from what James actually said and what he wrote in, in Greek there. The, the term he uses, and it's just one word in Greek, it means you adulteresses. You adulteresses. You see, it, it's a feminine term. And it refers to a woman who's been unfaithful to her husband. And realizing that little detail will help us understand what James is saying here in the first place. He's not calling out marital infidelity in this letter. What he's doing is he's talking to people. He's talking to both men and women who are guilty of spiritual adultery. So he uses this word. And because he's writing primarily to Jewish followers of, of Jesus... They, they, they would have known exactly what this means. Because it's language that God used throughout the Old Testament. Many occasions. The prophets compare, throughout the Old Testament, the prophets compare the relationship between God and his people to a marriage relationship. I'll give you an example. Isaiah 54 says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife, deserted and distressed in spirit. You see what God is saying there. He's a husband to his people, and we his people are his bride. In many other parts of the Old Testament, we see the same imagery. The Lord is described as a husband, Israel's the wife, and, and, and when the people of Israel start to worship false gods, they start to worship idols instead of their true God, he accuses them of committing adultery. What it says in Jeremiah 3, verse 20. But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you have been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. The whole book of Hosea, in fact, just expands on that theme. It's all about the way that Israel spiritually wandered, cheated on, strayed from faithfulness to their husband, their God. God's faithful husband, he provides, he protects, he serves them, but they find new lovers again and again. And in fact, Jesus himself uses this imagery. When he calls, he's talking to people who, who have rejected him, and he calls them a wicked and adulterous generation. Many of you maybe know how the book of Ephesians chapter 5 describes marriage in terms of the relationship between Christ and his church. A marriage, covenant relationship. That's how God sees us in relationship to him. And James is echoing all of that. He's talking to Christians, remember? People who, who have confessed with their mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord. And they have believed in their hearts that he rose from the dead. He's talking to people who have been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
These are people like so many of us. He's talking to us. He's talking to the church. And he's saying, you're a bunch of cheating wives. God is saying, I, I, I gave myself to you, but you're giving yourself to others. You, you, you've chased affection and, and satisfaction from someone else instead of me alone. But how were James's readers committing spiritual adultery? They, they weren't worshiping uh, pagan gods, right? They weren't bowing and sacrificing to Baal or, 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 or building shrines to other pagan deities. And there's really no reason to believe that any of them had explicitly denied the gospel or, or denounced Christ. They weren't doing that. What they were doing was more subtle. What James points to is their friendship with the world. Friendship with the world. You have to understand what that means. We don't want to misunderstand that. It doesn't mean they had friends in the world. The word friendship here is a, is a deep word. He's saying you've been seduced by a world that's hostile to God. Seduced by the values, the ethics, the practices of a world that's hostile to God. You, you've chased what the world can offer you instead of finding satisfaction in what God offers, what your husband offers. And how do we know they were being seduced by the world and the world's wisdom and the world's ethics and values and practices? How do we know that? Well, all we have to do is read the first three chapters of James. James 1 and James 2, he says, they were discriminating against people. In James 3, he tells us that they were using their words to curse and hurt others. Then later in James 3, he says that they were living with bitter jealousy, with selfish ambition, seeking their own good not the good of others. They were going to war with each other to, to fulfill their selfish desires, chapter 4 tells us. So in all those ways, discriminating, cursing and hurting others, backbiting, bitter jealousy, selfishness, and selfish ambition, wars, fulfill their own selfish desires, all of that, well, first of all, it's all natural and normal in our society. But God wants us to see the, 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 the massive severity of it all. He wants us to see it for what it really is. The world calls it normal. God says, Christian, it's adultery. You're, you're making yourselves, in fact, as you do this, you're setting yourselves up as enemies of God. You're, you're, you're setting yourselves up as enemies of the one who loves you and gave himself not only for you, but gave himself to you. One commentator, a scholar, Douglas Moo, says about this passage, God tolerates no rival. God tolerates no rival. No rival lovers. And that's the point of verse 5, in fact. 
where James says, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? It, that's a hard sentence to translate, by the way, and to, and to interpret. There's disagreement about exactly what it means, but a lot of scholars have landed here, and I, and I think it makes sense. They agree that what this is doing is it's referring to the fact that God is a jealous husband. And, and, and before we get confused about what that means, we have to understand that the jealousy that God talks about the jealousy, I should say, that he exhibits is very, very different from our jealousy. One teacher put it this way. He chose his people like an ardent groom. He chose his people like an impassioned, love-filled groom. So his jealousy is not like our jealousy. Our jealousy is self-serving. We want things for our good. God's jealousy, it actually serves us and it seeks our good. He wants us to be faithful to him and he will not tolerate infidelity. Why? J.I. Packer says he has a zeal to protect. And that's why he calls us away from friendship with the world or what some people have called worldliness. Worldliness. And notice what worldliness means here. Some of us, maybe if you grew up in a church environment, um, some of us, we grew up in a, an environment where, where worldliness meant what? It meant that you, well, maybe you dressed a certain way, you dressed immodestly, or, or you used bad words, or you, you watched stuff that you shouldn't watch, or you listened to things that you shouldn't listen to. And that's all that worldliness was understood to be. I'm not saying the only thing, any of those things are good. But what James calls worldly here is, is something else altogether. He's referring to what he's talked about earlier in this book. He's referring to partiality, discrimination, hurtful, destructive words, selfish ambitions, conflicts that are born out of competitiveness or, or jealousy. You see, according to God's word, worldliness can look like that. Worldliness, friendship with the world, it's a, it's a rejection of the wisdom that comes from above, as James says. Because the wisdom that comes from above, the wisdom that God gives us, as James explains earlier, chapter 3, that wisdom, it, it, it gives us, it brings peace. But this is, this is a rejection of that kind of wisdom, and it's living by a kind of wisdom that James calls earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Proverbs 13 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. And what it's talking about there, usually if we interpret that in the most literal sense, it means that if you hang out with wise people, you will grow wiser. And if you hang out with fools, you will suffer as a result of it. And I think there's another way to look at this too in light of what James is telling us. You see, James is saying you've become friends with the world. And, and so, because you, you've been adapting the world's perspectives, their ethics, their practices, their, their values, their ambitions, you've walked alongside the world and, and you've begun to absorb their wisdom. You've become stained by the world, as James says back in chapter 2. Because that's where your allegiances lie. So. 
there's a question that I think arises for us here. For us, where, where are, are we becoming more deeply and deeply in love with the world? The world's values, ethics, goals. So that, so that we're actually wandering from our love towards the God who gave himself to us. I remember a couple of weeks ago, we, um, I, I asked us as a, as a church to evaluate our ambitions. What, what are we trying to achieve in, in 2020 and even beyond in our lives? What are the things that we're really about? What are the things that we're trying to do? And ask the question, what are those ambitions really about? Are they just selfish? Do they have any connection with serving and loving and knowing and glorifying God? As we evaluate our ambitions, I think that's one way for us to see if we've started to wander from our husband, wander from our God, and become more and more infatuated, more and more shaped by the wisdom of this world. And last week, I asked us to evaluate the, the desires that drive us to fight. What are the things that, that cause you to enter into conflict with the people you love? Maybe the people you don't love, too. What are those desires? As you look at those desires, it reveals something. It reveals something about what it is that's driving us. I think it can help us realize whether we have, in fact, been living in an adulterous relationship with the world. The more we become friends of the world, the more we will adopt the wisdom of the world. It's that simple. And, and, and when we do that, James says, we actually become enemies of God. It's such an such a interesting, it's a shocking way to describe this because he's talking to Christians. We, we have peace with God because Christ has died for us and we put our faith in him. As our brother said, there's now no more condemnation. The conflict, as we said last week, has been squashed. The conflict between us and God, we now have peace, eternal peace, Jesus Christ died in our place. There's no doubt about that. And yet, James is still saying, when you begin to stray from your love for God and begin to become more and more infatuated with the ways of this world, you're actually becoming an enemy of God. What does he mean? What does he mean? He means that by our thoughts and our words and our actions, we're actually living in a way that is in opposition what God desires. It's an opposition to God's will. It's an opposition to God. And that may be seem, seem kind of vague. Like, how do I know if I'm living in a way that's in opposition to God? How do I know that? How about we look at it this way so it's a little bit more tangible, a little bit more um, just visible for us. James explains earlier in this letter that when we live by the wisdom of the world, what happens? James says that kind of wisdom, it's, it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic wisdom. And, and that what results from it is always disorder. It always leads to disorder. And he also shows throughout the first part of this letter that that kind of worldly wisdom, it always hurts and it always destroys. It hurts people. It hurts relationships. It upends peace and creates disorder within the community, whether it's the community of the church, the community of family, the community of your workplace, and you're living by the wisdom of the world, 
it, it, it's going, because, it's gonna, because it's always accompanied by selfish ambition, it's always self-serving, it's always going to lead to breakdown in the fabric of that community. So here's a question for us. As you look back at your past, is that what you see? As you look back at your past, even recent past, is that what you've left behind? Hurt people. Busted relationships. Burnt bridges. Quarrels and fights. And it always seems to be someone else's fault. At least that's what you think. James would say, that kind of fruit in your life, that is not the product of wisdom that comes from above. That's the product of the kind of wisdom comes when we have unknowingly or knowingly adopted the ethics, the values, the practices of the world. Selfish ambition, bitter jealousy, partiality, pride. You can go to war with others. We can all do this. Listen, we can go to war with others. We, we can ruin relationships. We can disrupt peace and believe that it's all justified, that, that it's, it's, we have a reason to be angry. We have a reason to say and do the things we did. It's right. It's justifiable. It's honorable. You can believe as you're doing that that you're behaving righteously and wisely. You may even believe it's all godly. God doesn't see it that way. He's in fool. He says, what's the fruit of you living that way? Is it disorder? Is it broken relationship? It hurt people? Alienation of people? New Hope, we can all be seduced by the ethics and the values and the, the practices of the world in different ways. And we may not even notice that it's happening. We can get wrapped up with the goals get wrapped up with what our society tells us is most important, most desirable, what will bring us a real sense of satisfaction, what will bring us a real sense of worth and accomplishment. So that's why our God's warning us. Because he knows that, that, that the creep, is a cre it, it's slow and it's unnoticeable, this creep towards spiritual infidelity. But he does more than warn us here. Thank God he does more than warn us here. These words, they, they might even come off as, as harsh, but, but it's not all that God has to say. He gives us a promise, too. And, and man, is this a promise. This is an awesome promise. It's the vow of a covenant-keeping husband. Look at verse 6. But he gives more grace. gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. To sit on that for a moment. In light of all that we've been talking about regarding the, the, the straying eyes and the straying hearts of God's people and how quickly we are to turn to get satisfaction and affection from other lovers. God says, I give you more grace. I'll keep giving you more grace. He, 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 just told, thanks, sister. he just told us about God's jealousy. 
And now he's telling us about God's grace. He gives more grace to restore relationships. He gives grace to, to, to rekindle affection. He gives more grace to reignite passion. You see that? He's able to give more grace to a straying lover in order to, to restore the intimacy, to rekindle the love, to reignite that passion. And he's the one who gives it all. He's the one who does it all. Remember, James tells us every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights. Coming down from our husband and our God. One scholar, Alan Mottier, he says this. He says, God's resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. His initiative never stops. His generosity knows no limits. He gives more grace. End quote. God doesn't give up on the marriage. He keeps chasing. And he keeps accepting, receiving us back, calling us back. Author by the name of Sam Albury, he puts it this way. God catches us in bed with another lover and yet he still takes us back. He gives more grace. Some of you might know a Puritan by the name of Richard Sibbs. He's written some wonderful, famous works, and one of them, his most famous work, he mentions this. There's more grace in God than there is sin in me. There is more grace in God than there is sin in us. His capacity to give grace extends further than our capacity to stray. If you're a Christian tempted by the world's values, if you're tempted by the, the goals and the ethics of this world, by the practices of this world, God gives more grace to resist that temptation in the first place, to, to fight against it, to stay faithful. He gives us the grace to stay faithful. But then if you've fallen, if you've been seduced, God gives more grace to restore you. He, he gives you more grace. He gives you more grace so that you can repent and turn away. And that guides us right into the last part. His promise comes with a directive. You might say a command. Instructions. Look at verse 7. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Because He gives more grace, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched. Mourn and weep. And let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. God is not saying, listen, do these things to earn my restoring grace. If He was talking about it that way, then it wouldn't be grace. Because grace is never earned, it's never worked for. No, what, what God is saying is, by doing these things, evidence that you've already experienced is saving grace. Doing these things is evidence that 
now see your need for more of his grace. Doing these things, submitting ourselves to God, resisting the devil, drawing near to God, cleansing our hands, purifying our hearts, being wretched and mourning over our sin, humbling ourselves before God, doing these things is evidence that you see your need for more of his grace to restore you and then to keep you from falling again. A commentator named Douglas Moo says, God's gift of sustaining grace is enjoyed only by those who admit their need and accept it. Yeah. You hear that? God's gift of sustaining grace is enjoyed only by those willing to admit their need and accept the gift. That's why James quotes Proverbs 3.34 back in verse 7. He says, in verse 6, he says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. You see, the proud person won't see any need for forgiveness. If you're proud enough, you won't see your need to be reconciled to the God you've betrayed. If you're proud enough, you won't see your need to get power from God to fight against sin. See, if you're proud enough, you stand in opposition to God. But if you humble yourselves and receive His promise, and receive these directives, well, there's hope. There's hope for us then. And really, what He gives us here is really just one directive. It's one basic instruction. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And, and that's what it looks like for us to be humble before the Lord. To be humble before the Lord is not just modesty. Like, oh, don't, don't, don't you know, don't speak too highly of me. I don't, I'm not comfortable with that kind of praise. It's not, the kind, it's not modesty. Again, commentator Douglas Moo, he says, to submit to God means to place ourselves under his lordship and therefore to commit ourselves to obey him in all things. That's the kind of humility that God's calling us to here. A humility that is willing to submit ourselves to God and place ourselves under His Lordship. It means to place ourselves under the authority of His loving rule. It means to willingly accept His wisdom and to reject all the other versions of wisdom out there in this broken world. How do we do that? How do we submit ourselves to God if we have been caught in spiritual adultery? If He has caught us in bed with the world, how do we now submit to Him? He tells us. He gives a list of things that all fall under that one directive. Submit yourselves to God. Here, what did He say in, verse, in the second half of verse 7? He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and He will come near to you. You see, see, when the world seduces, God says it's the, it's the world, but it's also, it's also really it's Satan seducing. Remember, he says that the, the, the wisdom of the world is not just earthly wisdom, it's also demonic wisdom. The world and Satan are entangled. They're some kind of evil partnership. And so, God will give us power to resist the seductions of Satan. He gives us power to resist the devil so that the devil will flee from us. While we fight, 
it's military language, by the way. Picture, picture a battalion holding its ground against an enemy offense. They're, they're not in the offense. They're, they're just trying to hold their ground. They're resisting. My, my, my son and I just watched 1917 recently. If you've seen that movie, you, you get a sense of what this looks like, right? The, 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 how hard it is. How bloody it is. How hopeless it feels to just hold your ground under ferocious enemy attack. But God says resist and keep resisting and eventually the enemy will flee. He may come back. In fact, he will come back. But if you keep resisting, he will keep fleeing again and again. And this means not just praying against Satan. In more practical, it means that, but in more practical terms, it means resisting the demonic wisdom of this world. How do we resist the devil? Here's one way. We resist selfish ambition. We resist jealousy. We resist partiality within our community. We resist criticism and undermining words. Resist all that. And the flip side is, draw near to God, he says. Draw near to God. And this is amazing that God would say this. He's saying, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. We're the ones who betrayed him. And he says, come near. He doesn't say, don't touch, get away from me. He says, come near. Come back home, he says. Because he wants to give you more grace. And then he goes on, he says in the next verse, in, in, in verse 8, the second half of verse 8, he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, or, or wash your hands. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. He, he's calling us, and calling his readers, and he's calling the church, wherever there's spiritual infidelity, he's calling us sinners and, and double-minded. And he's saying, wash your hands, cleanse, purify your hearts. He, he's saying, your hands, that, that means your, your, your actions, and your heart, that means your inner life, your, your thoughts, your affections, your attitudes. So you need to address both of those areas. Because, because in your heart, you're still vacillating between your allegiance to God or the world. He's talking to people there whose their, their minds, they, they wanted, they still wanted friendship with the world, even while they were desiring to be friends of God, too. And he's saying you must choose. He's saying repent from the outward actions and from the inward thoughts. And come near to me. Come back to me. These are the words. You see, as, as our brother was pointing out earlier, as, as Jesus, these are not the words of a God who's saying, do more for me and prove that you love me. Do more for me and prove that you'll never be unfaithful again. Do more and prove that I can trust you. He's not saying do more. He's not saying produce more. He's saying, come back to me. And I'll give you more grace. You've already received my grace. You know it's good. You've tasted it. I'll give you more. He says in the second half of verse 9, well, actually the first part of verse 9, he says, be wretched and mourn and weep. The same God who says, come home, he's also saying, there, 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 there must be sorrow here. A mourning, a weeping over your infidelity. He says, change your laughter to mourning. And change your joy to gloom. 
He's talking to people who are celebrating in their infidelity. They didn't see a problem in it. They were happy in it to some degree. And he's saying, no, that must change. That must, that must turn to a sorrowful repentance. And I wonder sometimes if we've, if we've oversimplified repentance. In my own mind, I think I've done this at times. We've sanitized repentance. We, we, we thought that it just, it's just a matter of changing my mind and receiving God's grace. And it's a very clean and tidy business transaction. And God pushes us to see that repentance runs deeper than that. We've all seen the celebrities caught in infidelity. And I remember, this doesn't happen so much nowadays, but I remember some years back, celebrities, there, especially if they were very, um, very famous, popular celebrities, especially if they had lots of um, business endorsements, their athletes with lots of endorsements that they're trying to keep, what would they do if they were caught in infidelity? They'd do a press conference. And in that press conference, they would say things like, I am not perfect. They would use terms like this, I exercise very poor judgment. But that's really not me. That's not me. I know better than that. I made some mistakes, there was poor judgment, but that's not me, and I'll do better. And sometimes we think that repentance is basically just that. And even, and even on t I feel like we don't even, we barely get that anymore from, from celebrities. But what we see here in James 4 is, is real sorrow. Real sorrow. It's what 2 Corinthians 7 calls godly grief. Look at what it says in 2 Corinthians 7. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. He's not calling us to just beat ourselves up, feel that guilt, pile on the shame. He's not saying that. What he's saying is that true repentance looks like sorrow over the betrayal. And it's expressed through grief, a godly grief that produces a change and that 2 Corinthians 7 says leads to salvation. I recently heard a brother who I love and I trust, I heard him confess sexual sin. And the process of that confession, it began with sorrow and tears. There was mourning in his voice and in his face. And as he confessed that to God and to others, there was a brokenness that actually led to more joy. You see, God is saying here, change your laughter to mourning, and then I will change your mourning to laughter. Change your joy to gloom as you turn away from sin and, and look to me, come back to me, and I will change your gloom to joy. Ever read Psalm 51? It's, it's, the entire psalm is, is David, a king, who had committed sexual sin and murder, confessing his sin. And one of the things he confesses is that I've sinned against these other people, but ultimately my sin is truly, ultimately, and at the deepest level, a betrayal of you. I've committed sexual, I've committed spiritual adultery. what he implies. And, and there's a brokenness there. But we, we, we often want to skip all that. We want to skip all the broken spirit and contrite heart 
stuff. Skip that bit and go right to the joy. But the broken spirit and the contrite heart before God is actually evidence that God's grace is at work and it's not cheap to us. It's not cheap. Because the forgiveness that God offers us in Christ is promised, it's eternal, it's trustworthy, it's steadfast, but it is not cheap. Christ died for spiritual adulteresses and for literal adulterers and adulteresses. It was a costly grace that he offers us. It cost him his life. He gives it to us for free, but it costs him everything. And, and the cross is where we can see the love of God pursuing and restoring and reconciling adulteresses. If you have truly received Jesus Christ by faith, you have entered into an eternal covenant union with God. He will not let you go. He cannot let you go. He will not break his covenant. And he says there is more grace in him than there is sin in us. His grace will outlast our sin. So if you've been seduced by the world, if you've been distracted by your groom, as someone has put it, see his love for you in the cross. See his power for, over sin in the cross. It, it needs to amaze us. It needs to startle us. It, if he was willing to die for you, do you think he won't take you back? He's already given up everything for you. What, what more does he have to do to prove to us that he will take us back? Remember this, new hope. Remember this. He opposes the proud, he says. He is not just indifferent towards the proud. He doesn't just pass by and ignore the proud. It says he opposes prideful people. Because the prideful person, if you're proud enough, you're likely to say, I'm not worldly. You are. I don't need to hear this. Other people do. I'm not the one who, who criticizes. I just have high standards. I'm not the one who undermines others. I'm not driven by selfish ambition. I just have lofty expectations and big goals. I'm not filled with bitter envy. I'm just justifiably angry. And with all those self-justifications, what are we doing? We're resisting the husband saying come back because the pride person if he's pride enough will isolate himself or herself from grace because I don't think they need it if you have not believed in Jesus Christ as Lord as Savior you need to see your love for him his love for you as well submit yourself to his love submit yourself to his love two questions and I'll stop First question is a simple one. We need to ask ourselves, where, where am I being seduced? How am I being seduced? Because remember, it's subtle and it creeps. Is it in the area of my ambitions and my goals? Is it in the area of my desires? How am I being seduced? Away from my first love, away from my husband, my God, towards the world. And, and, and how can I walk out this kind of repentance here? Where have I been seduced? And how can I walk out this kind of repentance? How can I draw near to God and deepen my intimacy with Him? Because that's what He's calling us to here. He's not saying produce more, prove your love. No, He's saying, he's saying come in closer. 
experience closer intimacy with you. If you don't have a plan for how to do that, for how to draw near, we need to develop plans for how to draw near to him. Because if we don't, our affection towards him is it's going to weaken. And we'll start wandering towards other lovers. We will start wandering to get from other people what only Jesus can give us or to get from the world what only Jesus what Jesus died to give us. You see, he's not going to break his covenant with us. He's not. But Jude 21 does say this. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. You see, there is mercy. The Lord Jesus has more grace. He wants to give more grace. There's more mercy for us. But as we walk, as we receive that mercy, we're not just passive. No, we're actively seeking to keep ourselves in his love. How do we do that? We do that by the simple, God gives us simple ways to do that. And he says, just keep doing these things. The, the, pure, the old Puritans used to call it communing with him. And it just means getting close to him. Listening to what he says to us in his word. Conversing with him in our prayers. Waiting upon him. Meditating on who he is and what he's done for us. It's these simple means of grace that we, that we use in, 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 in the gathering when we're together and in private. Take those means of grace. Just humbly seek to use them and say, Lord, I want to know you more. I'm, I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. So bind me to yourself. Draw me into yourself. And, and I will do whatever I can to keep myself in your life. to rekindle that, that friendship with God, to, to rekindle love. It always takes time together, doesn't it? We can't rekindle relationships without spending time together. Same goes for our relationship with God. It, it requires us to go back to the beginning, to remember what we first loved about Him. Getting to know Him all over again. And there's no substitute for time when it comes to that. But, but as we invest that time, in his word, in prayer, in worship, in fellowship, together and alone. As we do that, remember this promise. He gives more grace. He gives more grace. Let's pray. Lord, you speak to us in this passage like, like, a, like a shocked husband who's caught his wife. being unfaithful. And yet, Lord, you call us back to yourself. What kind of grace is this? What kind of love is this? Lord, give us, give us the grace we need to even respond and to draw near to you and submit ourselves to you and to keep ourselves in your love. Lord, we are fully dependent on you. We love you. Deepen our love, we ask. And, and, and as if there's anyone here, Lord, who's maybe has strayed so far, they don't know how to get back. Lord, would you please draw them back? Use your word by your spirit. Draw them in. Remind them your promises. Remind them of what you have done to make them yours and how you have given yourself to them and draw them back home. We ask all this in Jesus.